I'm Nikki Strong, and this is VOA One, the hits. Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from the Voice of America. I'm Ashley Thompson, and I'm Dan Novak. This program is designed for English learners, so we speak a little slower, and we use words and phrases, especially written for people learning English. Today on the program, Jill Robbins tells us how the United Nations is celebrating International Women's Day this year. Later, Dan Novak presents this week's education report. We close with the next part of our U.S. history series. But first, here is Jill Robbins. Countries around the world are celebrating International Women's Day, or IWD, on Wednesday, March eighth. The United Nations says. The theme it is celebrating this year is digital innovation and technology for gender equality. The UN says that from the earliest days of computing, women have contributed to information technology, but it says those contributions have been little recognized or valued. The international organization says thirty-seven percent of women do not use the internet. It also says 259 million fewer women than men have access to the internet. Yet women account for very close to half the world's population. The UN says women are largely underrepresented in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics careers. Bringing women into technology results in more creative solutions. And has greater potential for innovations that meet women's needs and promote gender equality, says the UN's website. For this year's International Women's Day, U.S. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said in a statement, "Let us work together across governments, the private sector, and civil society to build a more inclusive, just." And prosperous world for women, girls, men, and boys everywhere. The IWD has its roots in the social and labor movement in the United States. It began in New York City on March eighth, eighteen fifty-seven, when female workers marched in protest of unfair working conditions and unequal rights in clothing factories. The workers called for a shorter workday and better pay. The National Archives says. On March eighth of nineteen o eight, women workers again marched through New York City, to protest child labor, and poor working conditions, and demand women's right to vote. The first recorded celebration internationally was on March nineteenth, nineteen eleven. In Austria, Denmark, Germany, and Switzerland. At that time, over a million people came out to support women's rights. After World War II, several countries started to celebrate Women's Day on March eighth. 
Two years later, the UN officially declared that date as International Women's Day in 1977. Some countries, including China, Russia, and Uganda, also recognize it as a public holiday. Past UN celebrations have included the issues of climate change, rural women, and HIV-AIDS. And since 2007, the U.S. State Department has presented the International Women of Courage Award to more than 180 women in 80 countries. I'm Jill Robbins. known that students' test scores decreased across the United States because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But many parents do not know that their own child or children are among those whose scores have suffered. In Boston, Massachusetts, Avena Joseph did not fully understand how much her 10-year-old son was struggling in school. She found out only with help from somebody who knows the Boston school system better than she does. Joseph is a Haitian immigrant. Her son, J. Ryan Matherin, was in the 30th percentile in reading. That means 70% of students had stronger reading scores than him. But Joseph did not know how far behind her son was until a hospital where he was receiving treatment connected her with a bilingual aide. It's only because I was assigned an educational advocate that I know this about my son, Joseph said. Schools have long faced criticism for failing to inform some parents about their kids' progress in school. But after COVID-19 school closures, the importance of keeping parents informed has in many ways never been greater. There are many chances to catch up, thanks to federal COVID aid, but it will take better communication with parents to help students get the support they need, experts say. Parents can't solve a problem that they don't know they have, said Cindy Williams. She is co-founder of Learning Heroes, a nonprofit working to improve communication between public schools and parents about student progress. In 2022, Learning Heroes questioned 1,400 public school parents around the country. The group found that 92% believed their children were performing at grade level. But in a federal survey, School officials said half of all U.S. students started this school year behind grade level in at least one subject. 
The struggles that brought Jay Ryan to the Hospital for Mental Health Treatment began in third grade. That was when he returned to in-person school after nearly a year of learning online. Jay Ryan was getting angry in class, disrupting lessons and leaving the classroom. Jay Ryan showed these behaviors during English and other classes, including Mandarin and gym. He did better in math class, one of his stronger subjects. But Joseph said teachers never told her about her son's problems with reading. Last spring, she sought treatment for her son's depression. She was helped at the hospital with the parent advocate who speaks English and Haitian Creole. The advocate pushed to get J. Ryan's scores from the tests given each fall to measure student learning. She explained to Joseph what it meant for J. Ryan to be in the 30th percentile in reading. Before this year, schools in the Boston system could decide whether to share test scores with parents. But it is not clear how many were doing it. In the fall, Boston schools started a communications program to help teachers explain testing results to parents as many as three times a year. Research shows there are many reasons teachers might not talk to parents about a student's academic progress, especially when the news is bad. Historically, teachers did not get a lot of training to talk to parents, said Tyler Smith. He is a school psychology professor at the University of Missouri. School leadership and support for teachers also make a difference, he added. Teachers might also think that poorer parents do not care about their child's progress, said Williams, the co-founder of Learning Heroes. Without these discussions, parents only look at report cards. But report cards are considered to be subjective. They may not be the best signs of overall student success. Many school systems have used their federal pandemic recovery money for summer school, tutoring programs, and other actions to help students recover from the pandemic. But students have not used the extra help as much as educators had hoped. If more parents knew their children were behind academically, they might seek help. After Jay Ryan moved to a new school, Joseph stopped getting phone calls from the teacher complaining about his behavior. Joseph said her son is getting good treatment for his depression. But Joseph said she has not received a report card this year or the test scores that the district claims it is now sending to families. She said, I'm still concerned about his reading. I'm Dan Novak.
You just heard Dan Novak present this week's education report. Dan joins me now to talk more about the story. Welcome back, Dan. Great to be back, Ashley. I was hoping you could explain the word subjective, which we heard in the story. Sure. Something subjective is based on feelings or opinions. It is the opposite of objective, which means based on fact. For example, it's about 10 degrees Celsius outside right now. That is objective. I also think it's really nice outside. But whether it's a nice day? That is subjective. It's just my opinion. In the story, you say that report cards given out by schools can be subjective. What did you mean by that? Report cards report out students' grades. In the U.S., students are often given letter grades. A is the best grade you can have, B the next best, then C, and so on. And the grade is often based on homework and class participation. It can be a more subjective judgment about a student's ability. If a student always does their homework but doesn't do it well, they could still get a good grade just for completing it. So, a student may have a strong grade in reading or English, for example. But in fact, they might actually have poor writing and reading skills. Test scores for reading, rather than a grade in a report card, are more objective measurements of student ability. And some parents only see their child's report card? Right. Like I say in the story, Schools sometimes don't communicate to parents very well about their child's struggles. As Cindy Williams says from the nonprofit group Learning Heroes, parents can't help fix a problem if they don't know a problem exists in the first place. In Boston, schools started a communications program to help teachers explain testing results to parents as many as three times a year. Well... Thanks again, Dan, for joining me, and thanks for this week's interesting story. No problem, Ashley. Thanks for having me back. VOA Learning English has launched a new program for children. It is called Let's Learn English with Anna. The new course aims to teach children American English through asking and answering questions and experiencing fun situations. For more information, visit our website, learningenglish.voanews.com. Welcome to The Making of a Nation, American History in VOA Special English. The first ten years of the 20th century in America were shaped by the strong leadership of President Theodore Roosevelt. And in the second decade, he returned to national politics to bring once more dramatic changes to the United States. Theodore Roosevelt was a distant cousin of Franklin Roosevelt, a Democrat who became president in 1933. In 1912, 
Teddy Roosevelt organized a new political party, the Progressives. Roosevelt created this new party after he failed to win the Republican presidential nomination. The Republican convention of 1912 had been controlled by conservative supporters of President William Howard Taft, and as we hear now from Leo Scully and Morris Joyce, the party nominated Taft for four more years in the White House. As a result, Roosevelt broke with the Republicans, and he and his supporters. Held their own convention. They formed the Progressive Party, and approved a platform that promised reforms. These reforms were proposed to make the government serve the people, and carry out more fully their desire for social progress. The Democratic Party also nominated a candidate who supported progressive ideas. The Democrats chose Governor Woodrow Wilson of New Jersey, a former president of Princeton University. So, for the first time in many years, there were three major candidates for president. Wilson clearly had the best chance to win. He had the support of almost all the Democrats. The Republicans, however, Were split. Some supported Taft; the others were for Roosevelt. Roosevelt refused to accept the idea of defeat. He campaigned hard, visiting many cities and towns, making speech after speech. Wilson also campaigned hard. He seemed to enjoy it as much as Roosevelt. Taft did not like it at all. He refused to do much campaigning. He spent most of the time at his summer home. It was a quiet election campaign until the middle of October. Then, only three weeks before election day, Roosevelt was shot. It happened in Milwaukee. Roosevelt had just left his hotel and climbed into the automobile that would carry him to the hall, where he planned to make a speech. As he stood in the open car, an extremist named John Shrank ran up to him, pulled a gun from his coat, and fired a bullet into Roosevelt's chest. The bullet knocked him down. Roosevelt said. It felt as if he had been kicked by a mule. He jumped up and put his hand to the wound. The bullet had passed through the inside pocket of his coat. It struck a steel case that held his glasses, and went through the folded fifty pages of his written speech. These slowed the bullet, and it went only a few centimeters into his chest. Roosevelt did not know if he was seriously wounded. He put his hand to his mouth and coughed. No blood came, and he knew the shot had not damaged his lungs. 
Roosevelt ordered the crowd around to stop beating Schrank. Bring him to me, he said. He looked down at the man. You poor creature, said Roosevelt. Then he turned away. Doctors arrived. They said Roosevelt must go at once to the hospital. But Roosevelt refused. He said he would go to the hall. I will make this speech, he said, or die. It will be one or the other. On his way to the hall, he told a friend, it takes more than that to kill a Roosevelt. I do not care a rap about being shot, not a rap. At the hall, he stood before the big crowd. His face was white, but he stood straight without help. Someone announced that Roosevelt had been wounded, but still planned to speak. Roosevelt's voice was very low, almost a whisper. I am going to ask you to be very quiet, and please excuse me from making a long speech. I'll do the best I can, but there is a bullet in me. He paused and then continued. It is nothing. I am not hurt badly. I have something to say, and I will say it, as long as there is life in my body. Roosevelt's speech was not important. He said nothing that he had not already said many times before. What was important, however, was his cool courage. Men did not see his act as foolish or overly dramatic. They saw it as the brave act of a strong man. To the public, he was a hero. Roosevelt spoke for almost an hour. Finally, very weak, he let himself be helped from the hall. He was rushed to a hospital where doctors could examine the wound. The doctors found that the bullet had broken a rib but caused no serious damage. They decided to leave the bullet where it was. The next day... Roosevelt made a statement from his hospital bed. Tell the people not to worry about me, for if I go down, another will take my place. President Taft and Woodrow Wilson sent messages of regret to Roosevelt. They announced that they would not campaign until Roosevelt was able to do so. Roosevelt's condition improved quickly. After two weeks of rest, he was ready to continue his campaign for the presidency. He made a speech to a big crowd at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Everyone was surprised to see how strong and healthy he seemed. Wilson ended his campaign in New York City the next day. He told a cheering crowd of Democrats, What the Democratic Party proposes to do is to go into power and do the things that the Republican Party has been talking about for 16 years.
On November 5th, the people voted. The winner was Woodrow Wilson. He received more than six million votes. Roosevelt was second with four million. Taft received only about three and a half million. Wilson's victory was even greater in the electoral vote. He got 435. Roosevelt got only 88. And Taft received only the eight electoral votes of Utah and Vermont. The Democrats won not only the White House, but also control of Congress. And a number of Democratic governors were elected in states formerly controlled by Republicans. The 1912 campaign ended public life for Theodore Roosevelt. Soon after the election, a friend visited Roosevelt and talked of possible victory in 1916. I thought you were a better politician, Roosevelt said. The fight is over. We are beaten. There is only one thing to do. That is to go back to the Republican Party. You cannot hold a party like the Progressive Party together. There are no loaves and fishes, no financial support. War was soon to break out in Europe. The United States would enter the struggle in 1917. As always, Roosevelt was ready to join in a fight. He asked for permission to organize an American force and lead it into battle in France. President Wilson, however, turned down the request. Roosevelt was sure that it was a political decision. He never forgave Wilson for keeping him out of the war. Although Roosevelt himself could not fight, four of his sons went into battle. One, his youngest son, Quentin, did not return. And when he received news of his son's death, Roosevelt wrote these words to honor him. Only those are fit to live who do not fear to die. And none are fit to die who have shrunk from the joy of life. Both life and death are parts of the same great adventure. All of us who give service and stand ready for sacrifice are torchbearers. We run with the torches until we fall satisfied if we can then pass them to the hands of other runners. The torches whose flame is brightest are carried by the brave men on the battlefield and by the brave women whose husbands, lovers, sons and brothers struggle there. These are the torchbearers. These are they who have dared the great adventure. Roosevelt's own great adventure was itself coming to an end. He suffered from painful attacks of inflammatory rheumatism and from a serious ear infection. He had difficulty in hearing and could not walk.
but the old man was still cheerful. He spent his 60th birthday in the hospital, and to his family and friends he said, I am ahead of the game. Nobody ever packed more kinds of fun and interest into 60 years. Death came to Roosevelt as he slept on the night of January 6, 1919. Said Vice President Thomas Marshall, Death had to take him sleeping, for if Roosevelt had been awake, there would have been a fight. That's our program for today. Join us again tomorrow to keep learning English through stories from around the world. I'm Ashley Thompson. And I'm Dan Novak.